Throughout human history, societies have grappled with fundamental questions of how to organize themselves, the proper relationship between the individual and the state. Whether we believe in our capacity for self-government or whether we confess that a little intellectual elite can plan our lives for us better than we can plan them ourselves. This alternative vision argues that ordinary men and women are too small-minded to govern their own affairs. That order and progress can only come when individuals surrender their rights to an all-powerful sovereign. Now we can see a new world coming into view. A world in which there is a very real prospect of a new world order. The international order that we have worked for generations to build. And today that new world is struggling to be born, the dream of a new world order. Welcome to the show. Would you like to hear a podcast? Hello and welcome to Our Foundations. My name is Joshua and I will be your host as we bring on another guest into this podcast as we dig into some of the overarching ideas for season two and he will be explaining to us some things related to theology and history and philosophy and some of these types of things so if you don't mind would you just go ahead and introduce yourself you could do so better than i can and tell me who you are what your name is obviously what you're associated with what you do as well as you're a Christian humanist, and many people might not be aware of what that exactly means. So if you could get into that as well, that would be helpful. Awesome. So my name is Nathan Gilmore. I'm a professor of English at Emmanuel College in Franklin Springs, Georgia. This is my 11th year here at the college, and I teach a broad range of classes. I do some writing classes, to be sure, and some literature, but also some rhetorical theory, medieval languages, philosophy, theology. Uh, what's great about this job is that uh, I can kind of teach a wide range of things, and it uh, keeps me from getting restless. I'm also one of the hosts of the uh, Christian Humanist Podcast. We've been doing what we do since October 2009, and three of us record together, and we talk about really uh, an unlimited range of subject matters, but our backgrounds are all in English. We were in the PhD program at University of Georgia together, uh, from about 2005, roughly speaking, to about 2009. Uh, and then, you know, I live here in the uh, Athens, Georgia area. Um, my wife, Mary, teaches sixth grade social studies. Uh, my son is a high school freshman, and my daughter's a fourth grader, so I keep busy getting them to their sports commitments and things like that. So uh, that's a, those are the broad brush strokes of who you're listening to, listeners. Okay, thank you. And what about the Christian humanist aspect? Could you say what that is? <laughs> Certainly, and it'll come up in our conversation today, but the humanists, as they would have called themselves, were a group of Christian writers and teachers and scholars starting around the, the 14th century and going on up into the 17th century. They picked up their name from the Roman philosopher Cicero, or Cicero, if you took Latin at some point along the line. Uh, and the idea that Cicero developed is that while other animals and other entities have very powerful fixed natures, human nature is such that we develop. Uh, and this is an idea that he didn't invent. He inherited it from Aristotle. But the notion is that human beings have a flexibility in our capabilities that other animals don't. Uh, the humanists of the Christian era, who later you know, got to be called Christian humanists, largely when humanists became synonymous with atheist in the 19th century, but the Christian humanists took that attitude and as they recovered 
the texts of Aristotle and of Plato, of other classical authors, uh, they brought that mentality to bear in a Christian framework. So the idea was that they would do work to glorify God, to serve neighbor, uh, to do the things that a Christian does, and they would do so with the particular capabilities and the particular flexibility of human nature in mind. Okay. Yeah, that's interesting. So I do want to jump into some of that history there that you're referring to. But before we do, let's start off with an overall broad look of what do you think the role is of looking at history, looking at historical parallels and events that have happened that can help us better understand modern times and things that are going on today? What do you believe the role of history is in that? Because obviously you have a lot to do with history. Certainly, certainly. And my mentality when it comes to the study of history is analogy tempered by complexity. So analogy first, whenever we look at uh, historical happenings, whether we're talking about ancient, ancient Babylonians, whether we're talking about medieval Japanese, whether today we're talking about uh, medieval and Renaissance European history, we can see things that definitely stand in analogy to each other. So in other words, relationships between entities that we read about in the 14th, 15th, 16th, 17th century can illuminate, shed light on relationships between entities in our own moment. I always want to temper it, though, with complexity because there are variables in each context that either are not present in the other context or have such different values uh, that we always need to be cautious about how much predictive power we think that it has. Really, when I think about the role of history, uh, it is in the development of what the biblical tradition and the Greek philosophical tradition would call wisdom, hokma in the Hebrew, sophia uh, in the Greek. Uh, and it is a capacity to have knowledge of the way that parts of a large system fit together. So the way that Plato talks about it, or has Socrates talk about it in the Dialogue Republic, wisdom is different from agriculture because agriculture is a very specialized knowledge of how to get the most yield, if you will, out of plants and animals. It's different from blacksmithing because blacksmithing is a knowledge of how to make metal objects strong and reliable. Wisdom, on the other hand, is the relationships between, among other things, farmers and blacksmiths, soldiers and rulers in a community, and seeing how they best work together, and seeing how things fall apart if they don't work in certain ways together. So that really is uh, why I always advocate uh, at my own college and in other contexts that we continue to study history. Uh, it's not that history repeats, uh, but history does stand in an analogous relationship to our own moment. Yeah, yeah, I definitely like that perspective. I personally am a systems guy, and my podcast does that a lot, looks at the systems of our society and how they evolve and how they interact together and how they're intertwined. So I definitely can get on board with that view of history and what historically, how that was viewed and how people looked at history in general. And um, with that, I also will agree with you on the limitations of creating these analogies. My the entirety of season two is going to be about analogies between historical times and historical events and thoughts and modern issues. And 
I do want to make sure that everybody is aware that we can't predict the future. And just because something played out one way in the past doesn't necessarily mean it'll play out exactly the same in the future. However, we can look at how it did play out in the past and what influenced it and why it played out the way it did and apply that to trends that we see and events that we see and influences we see in the present to, I would say, better understand our current environment versus being able to overall predict the future because, like you say, we we can't do that. But we can get a better understanding. We can be more statistically accurate in predicting some of the things that may happen from a very broad societal point of view, at least. And so hopefully we can do that as... As I dig into season two, and hopefully we can pull out a few things like that during this interview here. So to begin with, let's go ahead and jump into the role of education in the Middle Ages, the Renaissance, the Reformation. How were people educated? What was the format there and the structure there? And how did that evolve through mainly the late Middle Ages, through the Renaissance, through the Reformation, leading to the Reformation? What was that evolution and what did that look like? Certainly. I'm mainly going to talk about Western Europe here. In Eastern Europe, the the Byzantine Empire, and then in Islamic kingdoms, we have uh, different systems, and they're certainly uh, worth studying, and I'll probably mention them in passing here and there. But in Western Europe, uh, we really have a large disintegration of educational systems with with the rise of the Germanic kingdoms. Uh, These are cultures that certainly have a sort of reverence for Roman ways, uh, but they tend to have values uh, other than those of rhetorical education. So in the period that we call the Middle Ages, uh, education happens largely at royal courts, in monasteries, in cathedrals, uh, in institutions that are affiliated with churches, by and large. And it's no big surprise there, because the church... Uh, whatever else we say about the church, is a literate institution. Uh, and, you know, because of the Bible, obviously, uh, because of theology writing, because of theological disputes, uh, there's always been a premium on teaching people to read Latin, usually, oftentimes Greek. And then in some certain special cases, especially in England, uh, they invent... Uh, written versions of the local languages. So, for instance, in England, in the 8th, 9th centuries, give or take, you do have monastic schools uh, that are largely dedicated to the interpretation of the Bible, and the kings of the various, you know, kingdoms of the island, and then eventually when you have a singular king of England, uh, will bring monks into their courts so that they can communicate, usually in Latin, with kings across the English Channel, with other kings within the island, so on and so forth. That holds to a large extent, you know, even over in the Holy Roman Empire, which is largely modern-day France, Germany, Italy. We get a uh, boom in education there in the 9th century when Charlemagne, Charles the Great, becomes the uh, emperor of that region. One of the things that he institutes is a a system of schools, again, largely so that the parts of the empire uh, can communicate with each other. Long about the 11th, 12th centuries, we get the rise of basically teaching collectives is what I'll call them. It's going to sound a little bit anachronistic or maybe like I'm doing a Monty Python skit, but we get teachers who say that they want to be somewhat independent of the monasteries and of the royal courts. And so in Bologna, Italy, in Oxford, England, in Paris, France, we get the rise of universities. 
and these are largely uh, freelance kind of operations. Students come to them because they want to be educated, because education is the key to working with the powerful in the world, because the powerful in the world derive their power from the ability to communicate. And so they learn logic, they learn grammar, they learn rhetoric in these universities. And really, uh, this is what sets the groundwork between the university system and then the monastic libraries uh, to receive a new influx of text that comes in in the, in the period that we come to call the Renaissance. What happens here is that, first of all, independent scholars like uh, Petrarca in, in Italy uh, begin to travel from monastery to monastery and to make copies of as many texts as they can to assemble libraries of pre-Christian pagan authors. The other thing that happens that really accelerates it is that a new Islamic uh, empire rises in the East. Um, and I want to say the Seljuk Turks, but I don't think that's right. No, it's, it's either the Seljuk Turks or the Ottoman Turks. I, listeners, look that up because I should have before I started recording. But at any rate, they begin to drive the very literate culture of the Byzantine Empire, which will be modern-day Turkey to a large extent, but also the Eastern Mediterranean more generally. They start driving them westward because they are just, you know, terrifying, frightening people. And when these people as refugees come into Western Europe, what they find waiting for them is this new institution called the university, which is not tied to an empire, it's not tied to a monastery, but it is simply a center of learning. When that textual tradition of the East and the universities of the West meet each other in the 14th century, the 15th century, the 16th century, we really get a boom in new thought, new art, uh, a rebirth, and that's what the uh, French word Renaissance means. It's a new birth of learning. It's a new birth of the classical ways. This comes to encounter another force that is rising, largely in Northern Europe, but also to some extent in Western Europe more broadly, uh, when the Augustinian monk Martin Luther, uh, as well as you know the French lawyer Jean Calvin, as well as some thinkers in the English islands, begin to use that Renaissance learning to call into question some of the authority of the Bishop of Rome. And when that happens, the Calvinists especially start to call themselves reformers of the universal church, so they become the Reformation. There's a certain collective of German princes who decide that you know their authority should be residing exclusively with themselves, not with themselves shared with Rome, so they become the protesting princes or the Protestants. And, you know, by the time we get to the era of absolute monarchy, which we'll talk about here in a little bit, uh, we get something that resembles modern nation-states in England, in France, and to a limited extent in Switzerland. So, you know, education is not the only driver by any means of these changes, but it's certainly, especially with the Re Reformation, a revolutionary effect of it. So let me talk for just a moment about Reformation education because it deserves some attention of its own. What we get there is an acceleration of what the Renaissance was doing. The Renaissance was recovering these classical modes of learning, grammar, logic, rhetoric, for the sake of basically service, you know, of these new rising political powers. 
the Reformation's revolutionary idea is that we should extend that to all Christians. And so the Reformation opens up schools and literacy just booms in this era. It's still not a universal literacy like we associate with modern public schooling, but it is far more widespread than it ever has been in the history of Europe. So by the time we get to the 17th century, uh, you have a reading public that is much more extensive than ever could have been imagined in the centuries before. So I, I, I kind of covered, uh, you know, what was that? 800 years there in about seven minutes. Are there any uh, gaps you want me to fill here? I think we will get into some of the in-between times as we go. Uh, there are a few things I wanted to highlight that you mentioned. You talked about how the church was highly involved in education to begin with, and everything oh, was yes, essentially yes. filtered through the church. I'm looking at the church, the historic church, as a parallel to the modern state that people rely on, they look up to, they put their hope and faith in. It's an overarching power over all of society. And so I definitely see that today the state is largely associated with education in our society, and there's a lot of influence there. And you talked about how universities sprang up and they were more independent institutions. And it kind of reminds me, I don't know how far you could take the analogy, but it does remind me at least of the rise of the internet in our digital age where you have these new platforms and access points to information that people can seek outside of anything that's officially state-sponsored or state-controlled or um, that the state really controls it all. And so I, I see some good parallels there that definitely remind me of modern times. And we see that, uh, like you said, no matter what you say about the church, you know, they were oriented towards education. And no matter what you say about the state, they do want to promote education for their citizenry, largely because they want to have high productivity rates for the nation as a whole. They want that GDP number to be pretty high. You want a better stance on the world stage as far as your power and political um, pull is concerned. And so states are also motivated to have an educated citizenry to an extent. And so they definitely promote that as well today. So I'm seeing some really good parallels here that, that I wanted to pull out there. But digging back into the historical time and these shifts in education and how that was how it was derived, how people were educated, and what they thought about education in general, what impact did theology have in particular? I know the church had a large role, and monasteries did, and that kind of thing, but the theology, especially of the Reformation and people having a different outlook, a different worldview, what impact did that specifically have on education? The Reformation, uh, first of all, is not without antecedents. We should go ahead and mention that. There are uh, Eastern European... Uh, forerunners of it with with the Hussites uh, and also with you know other moments movements rather in Bohemia uh, and also you know there is the English forerunner forerunners really Wycliffe and Tyndall. What they all have in common uh, is a notion that human authority is inherently flawed, and I think this is an interesting uh, parallel to what you just mentioned about the state because. Uh, certainly there are economic reasons that the state wants to promote education, and I think that's been probably overemphasized over the last 30 years. I associate that with a, a sort of Bill Clinton mentality towards education. But if you dig a little bit deeper than that, 
you see some definite, not only parallels, but also direct influences. So whereas the Reformation uh, had a suspicion of isolated and concentrated authority in the bishops and wanted to extend that privilege of interpreting the holy book to the laity, likewise, uh, American democracy, at least in its concept, and I'll go ahead and grant uh, that we need to control for corruptions and the influence of political parties and all those sorts of things. Like I said, analogy plus complexity all the time. But the idea there is that, again, authority should not be concentrated, but instead we should have a broad-based education for democracy uh, so that the next great idea could come from anywhere and so that the next bad idea can be checked from everywhere. So again, you know, that Reformation mentality of a disparate authority uh, I would say, you know, as English Protestants and as Scottish Protestants and as other sorts of people come over to settle North America, that's definitely a strong influence in the way that we think about uh, our political order. Now, as far as the theology goes, there's a couple other uh, notes that we really should pay attention to. One of them is a renewed focus on what Augustine called the cupidity of human beings. The idea being that all of us desire, all of us are always desiring, and the proper desire for human beings is God, and therefore for truth and beauty and goodness, but that because of the fallenness of human beings, we cannot trust each other to desire what is true and good and beautiful. The way that that translates into theology uh, in the Reformation era is that there is a strong emphasis on uh, original sin and on total depravity. Now, the distinction between those two uh, gets to be important. Original sin is a notion that nobody, irrespective of their family, irrespective of their raising, irrespective of their background, is immune to the distortions that come into the world through sin. And therefore, if we talk about political implications, there's a strong suspicion uh, of, again, concentrated power. On the other hand, you have total depravity, and this is the notion that our fallenness, our distortion, is not located primarily or exclusively in the body, as you see it written about in some monastic writings from the 11th, 12th, 13th century, but that it also extends to uh, the mind and to the soul. So this bears out in a couple different ways. One way that it bears out uh, in what I call a, a, a broadly Hobbesian direction uh, is the idea that power should be invested in an absolute sovereign, first of all, because if you trust people's uh, whims, they're going to go this way and that with such a rapidity that it's going to be chaos. If you have someone who is entrusted and charged with the maintenance of order, then that context, that framework is going to check that somewhat. And if that doesn't check it, of course, what Hobbes will tell you is that uh, at that point, the sovereign gets overthrown and you get a new sovereign. It's not a coincidence that uh, Hobbes wrote Leviathan while there was no king in England and the previous king of England was without a head. Uh, the other way that it bears out in what I'd call a Lockean direction is that the people themselves have to be a check on each other. And this bears out not only in Locke, but also Baron de Montesquieu in the idea of separation of powers and things like that. So what I would say is, you know, when we talk about uh, analogies between this Reformation moment and our own modern assumptions, I'll call them, because again, 
Uh, we always have to control for complexity, and one of those kinds of complexity is corruption. But when we talk about the actual concept, the idea of politics that most of us start with uh, as English-speaking North Americans, they have their roots, to be sure, in the Enlightenment of the 17th, 18th, 19th centuries. But those Enlightenment ideas themselves have very Protestant roots in the 15th, 16th, 17th centuries. Yeah, yeah, that definitely makes sense. And there are definitely some direct connections between these ideas that are popping up in the beginning, probably through the Renaissance. I guess there's no technical beginning, but we see them strongly starting to come up in the Renaissance, but definitely in the Reformation and see those links to the Enlightenment period, which obviously is the foundation for most of Western society today. And so, yeah, I definitely see those connections there. And you mentioned that corruption is maybe something that adds to the distortion. But at the same time, that's also something that's fairly analogous between the church, the historic church, and the modern state. I think there are definite examples in both cases of widespread corruption and abuses of power. So that's something else that, although it might happen in different ways from different influences for different reasons, we do see that factor, at least broadly, in that historic institution as well as our modern institution. And that does affect things, like you say, that that is an influence, that is a complexity that definitely has a bit of an impact on how things turn out and the direction that things go from a societal point of view, a more macro view. So... And if I could add one more uh, ironic wrinkle here, yeah. uh, the absolute monarchies of the 17th and the 18th centuries uh, very explicitly present themselves as necessary to put a check on the concentrated power of the church. So, you know, the, uh, the complaints that uh, drive the American Revolution in the 18th century uh, are themselves responses to earlier replies, if you will, uh, to the concentrated power of the church. So one thing that I, I always try to tell my students when we look at history is that, uh, again, you know, the analogies are there, but also the direct lines of influence are such that often the corruption that you're trying to battle had its own start as a counter-corruption measure 150, 200 years before that. Yeah, yeah, that definitely makes sense. That plays out over and over again throughout history. Indeed. Yeah, we see that again today over and over again. So to branch off a little bit here, you're talking about these big impacts that the Reformation had on how people thought and how education was viewed and attained. What about the other big aspect of this time period that sprung up, and that would be the printing press? That had a huge influence on society. It was a really big deal. It definitely had a big impact on these movements as well. So if you could talk a little bit about the impact that the printing press had maybe on education, but also on the Reformation as a whole, as well as maybe the role of books and literature that um, really influenced a lot of these things. I think that came into play even before the printing press. There was a lot of influence from the what we look at now as classical literature. You mentioned Petrarch and maybe you could say Dante, people like that, as well as getting past the printing press and into the Reformation. You had a lot of books and literature that were coming out. You had the um, theological discussions that were happening where Luther was battling other people as well, and all this was able to be read by the public. And so what role did the printing press have and how big of a deal was that? 
It was revolutionary. So let me talk a little bit about writing as a technology. I mean, we see it arise in the uh, Mesopotamian empires in the, roughly speaking, third millennium BC. Uh, and really, I mean, the primary functions of writing uh, are threefold. One of them is to keep records for mercantile trade. One of them is to relay orders from emperors to provincial authorities and then from provincial authorities out from there. And then the third is to maintain and to propagate uh, religious teaching. So they wouldn't have called it religious teaching. That terminology really doesn't come into broad use until really the most recent 400 years of our era. But, you know, when it comes to establishing new temples, things like that, all of those things would have re re required writing. And so uh, the literate traditions tend to be the ones that last longer. It's not a coincidence that Alexander the Great, for instance, established not only uh, military rule over the previous Persian Empire, but also schools throughout it. So fast forwarding to the Reformation era, the real revolution here is, as I said, on the educational side, a drive for a much more broad-based literacy. And then on the technological side, the, the movable type printing press. And I make that distinction because there were monastic printing presses, but they would have plates that would be an entire page so that they could produce, you know, Bibles, for instance, with relative rapidity, but that's all they could produce with that set of plates. What movable type did was allowed you in hours rather than in months to produce new books. And it is, again, you know, one of those wonderful conjunctions in history that the wildly active mind of Martin Luther and the wildly powerful technology of the printing press meet there in the 16th century because Martin Luther's ideas can go out uh, just as quickly as he can write them. If you've ever been to a seminary library or a theological library that has the collected works of Luther, you see just how powerful that is. The works of Luther take up three or four bookshelves. He was constantly putting his words out into the world. And so, although there was a formal authority that was not shared, uh, you know, that resided in Rome, yet this ability to bring ideas, subjects and verbs, sentences and paragraphs into the minds of broad, broad reaches of people was becoming a lot more diffuse. And so, when we start to look at, uh, you know, some of the measures that the kingdoms uh, started taking to limit printing, we have to remember that what they were doing was putting a check on something that was a power that, again, the human species, as far as I can tell, had never seen before. So I, I have some sympathy for the kings in, in seeing that, you know, this is a very dangerous thing. As far as the theology goes, uh, once again, you know, Martin Luther's core ideas, you know, among them the justification by faith alone, the central and unchallenged authority of Scripture, um, you know, the idea that um, Christ is the unilateral agent of salvation, uh, so that the comparison of works between one believer and the other become meaningless. Uh, these are, again, not unprecedented ideas. You can certainly find their roots in Augustine, among others. But because they are going out into the world, again, into this newly literate world, uh, into this world where 
you know, the printing press is a disruptive force over against formal authority, uh, you get entire kingdoms uh, that become effectively Protestant. And it's, again, it bears out uh, at the end of uh, the Thirty Years' War in 1648, which I think of as the beginning of the modern era. I know there are other people would place it other places, but the reason that I would make it the beginning of the modern era is because the terms of the treaty, the Treaty of Westphalia, if I remember right, although I not, might not be remembering right, that ends the Thirty Year Wars are thus, whoever the prince is, that person determines the religion. Uh, and there's a Latin phrase that goes with it that I'm not going to try to reproduce here. Listeners, you can go look that up. But for the first time in European history, at the very least, there is a recognition, at least legally and politically, that there is not a unified church, but instead you have a plurality of churches. It's still not individual choice. That notion really doesn't come around in a broad base uh, until later in the 17th century with the writings of John Locke, and then in the 18th century with the Bill of Rights and the U.S. Constitution. But at the very least, uh, you have pluralism in religion uh, in a region that used to be uh, assumed to be a single universal church. Uh, so, I mean, really, that is the overarching organizing change in religious ideas that makes sense of the other also very important ideas like grace alone, faith alone, scripture alone, the unilateral agency of Christ, so on and so forth. So uh, any other uh, theological bits that you want me to get into? Because uh, I, uh, I I really could talk about that alone for a good hour, but I, I don't necessarily want to today. <laughs> yes, I got you. Um, let's see, maybe... You talked about how there were some movements that had happened before. You mentioned Jan Hus and Wycliffe and people like this. Those were movements that really didn't seem to gain a lot of traction, although they were very similar to some of the ideas that Luther was talking about. And the Hussites even had whole crusades that were attempting to take them out and finally did after a long time, many tries. But what... What do you see as some of the reasons why these earlier Reformation movements never really gained steam, never really took off, versus these, uh, what I'll refer to as modern in this historical context at least, examples of the Reformation with Martin Luther? Why did that actually work this time? What, what else was going on? What might have impacted that? A few things I would point to, and, and history, of course, is always a game of multiple causation. Uh, if any... If anyone ever tells you the single cause of a grand historical event, they're probably selling you something. Uh, so a few of the factors that I think really gave Martin Luther's iteration of this church reform wheels, one of them is the continued weakening of the Holy Roman Empire. Uh, as I said, I mean, Martin Luther was a thorn in the side of Rome, but Rome couldn't put hands on him because there were princes in the Holy Roman Empire who had become independently so powerful that when the emperor said hand over Martin Luther they could just say no we're not going to. Another factor of course is the technological change uh, with the uh, printing press. Uh, also you know transportation was improving in the era. Okay, You also have a movement that's arising in largely northern Europe but also in uh, other parts of Europe called the modern devotion movement. And this is modern, not in the sense that there are, you know, railroads and electric lights, but in the sense that 
in their moment, they wanted to be devoted to God for themselves, not necessarily uh, being carried along by saints of previous generations. And so this very, uh, what I'm going to call pietistic in a broad sense movement, uh, prepares people to think about their life with God as a very individual thing. And so when you know Martin Luther's sermons start to go out, and of course his sermons, he preaches some of them, but he also writes them so that other people can deliver them in parts of Europe where Martin Luther can't be. When people hear these, and this very strong focus on Christ and the, the relationship of Christ to the individual, there is a public there waiting uh, that basically is ready to hear this message in a way that they would not have been for Jan Hus's iteration for it, that they would not have been for Wycliffe's version of it. And so that combination of the political and the technological and the devotional are all in place there in the early 16th century in a way that they just weren't for previous iterations of it. Okay. Now, is there a connection there between scholasticism and humanism and these views? Because my understanding is that on one side, you had more of a reverence for classical texts and the saints and such. And then on the other hand, you had people that were focused on the commentaries that were about the source documents. So you had some people that wanted to go to the source and read it for yourself. And there are other people that wanted to basically focus mostly on the commentaries about the source documents. And is there a connection there? There's certainly a connection there. And I, and I would say that it is something that runs parallel to the modern devotion. Uh, the modern devotion is largely a lay movement, whereas scholasticism is housed largely in the universities. Uh, so the shift from scholasticism to Christian humanism uh, is a renewed emphasis on rhetoric, a renewed emphasis on the experience of learning rather than the formal structures of it. And you're right, uh, part of that emphasis on the experience of learning is going to the ancients themselves uh, unmediated by the generations of commentators before. Now, certainly John Calvin writes a bookshelf worth of commentaries. Martin Luther writes commentaries. But what each of those figures insists upon uh, is that the Bible itself should be the primary text and the commentaries take a far diminished role relative to what they would have been in the 11th, 12th, 13th centuries. Uh, scholasticism, of course, doesn't stop in the University of Paris or other Euro European universities of this time. Uh, and in fact, we get, you know, arguably one of the, I, I would say probably next to Thomas Aquinas, the second greatest scholastic thinker arises in the 17th century in Spain, uh, Francisco Suarez. Uh, now, after Suarez, I really don't know of any really strong examples of scholasticism, but uh, one thing that I'm always cautious about is don't think of scholasticism as ending once Erasmus arrives on the scene. It keeps going well beyond the lifetime of Desiderius Erasmus. Okay, yeah, that makes sense. So I'm thinking of trying to parallel this with some modern movements. It does seem like people today, with uh, the access that the internet affords, people are able to learn things for themselves. They're able to look at things like source documents and source audio, depending on your format that you learn through. And people do have a lot more access. They're not 
I guess some people, at least, there are movements where people are not wanting to have the information mediated through a third party before they access it. A lot of people want to access it firsthand or at least as close to the source as possible, and the internet is allowing that as a possibility. So that's kind of interesting there as a similar view there where people were wanting to base everything on the original source and go back to the ancients such as Greek philosophy I know was a big influence as well as the Bible, obviously. And that's happening again now where people are starting to break off from the formal institutions of only learning while you're at school. And now people are they're discovering things like podcasts, for example, and audiobooks, and the internet as a whole, and blogs, and all these different formats where you can learn, where you can see a report from someone on the ground in Iran during some very complicated political time, and you can get you can get current data and current information, and you can really get what's going on in the moment through the internet, and that was something that people didn't really have access to before, and a lot of people weren't really interested in. And I guess overall, if you look at society as a whole, many people still are not interested, and they just want to watch the news and have the information fed to them, because I would argue they're probably fairly lazy and trained to learn that way. But there are issues there. But we do see some movements that have some similarities. And looking at those I was also reminded earlier when you talked about how the powers that be were a little scared and hesitant when the printing press came out. This was a new technology, and they were a little worried about the ideas that might spread and what the impact on society and the people they ruled over, what the impact would be on these people. And so you did see some censorship that was coming out. Some groups did try to control different uh, printing methods, and some people owned their own print shops. You had different people that were in charge, nobility and such, that began to run their own printing outfits at times. You had the church printing off their own arguments and their own point of view and perspectives. You had propaganda that was being spread, as well as true information. You had a lot of these different things there that were coming out. And I see that again today, where now that we have access to information firsthand, there have been people that have released documentation that calls out the state. You have something like WikiLeaks that has definitely revealed many things that are, I would say, a bit embarrassing, at least, to the modern state. And that is something that the modern state, as well as other institutions, might not be so fond of. If there's information about a company that's coming out and that might be leaked, usually those companies are not very fond of that information being leaked. And usually they go after the whistleblower, oftentimes, instead of basically reforming themselves, where we have some parallels there. But we see this today as well as then. And with today we see that social media and blogs and different news sources and educational platforms, all of these things are things we have access to today with the internet and in this digital age. Just like at this historic time, you had the printing press come out where people had more widely circulated arguments and points of view, and you had the Catholic side and the Reformer side and Martin Luther's arguments for things. There were sermons that were printed out and passed around so that 
pastors would be able to give a sermon and would not uh, be at risk of saying things that might not be in agreement with the people that they are that they say that they side with. And so we do see a lot of that kind of stuff going on. And so with that, what do you see today as some of these parallels with maybe the media and big tech and the gatekeepers for information? And um, what do you see as some of those parallels there between the church and the nobility wanting to control information at that time? I want to talk about some of those analogies to be sure, but it's going to culminate with something that is genuinely revolutionary. I, I said that we need to think about analogy tempered with complexity there's also a, a third possibility, which is a genuine revolution. And I'll talk about that last because it's the most fun. Uh, the analogies, you know, obviously uh, you do have centralized, concentrated authorities now uh, that, you know, do find uh, these new media to be threatening. Uh, you also have uh, a revolution in education that's going on right now. There's a I'm going to say a new interest in pedagogy uh, that I like to call education after Google uh, that is trying to adjust what colleges do. I am, of course, a college professor, so I'm very interested in this. Uh, so that what we offer to students is something that they cannot get simply through a Google search. And the emphasis tends to be, uh, perhaps not surprisingly, something that Desiderius Erasmus would have recognized and Cicero before him namely an education that is developed, that is, pardon me, focused upon the development and on the uh, improvement of the student rather than focused on the relay of information. So uh, one thing that I tell my writing classes every semester, that's, a, that's the class that I probably teach most often, is that writing class isn't mainly about new information, it's mainly about sharpening your habits. And, you know, what, what my hope is, I'll put it that way, because obviously I could get a different job, but I think that the work that I do remains inherently valuable. And the reason that I do is because, again, with this return to that humanist approach, this notion that human nature is flexible, again, by returning to what is old, I think that we can do something genuinely new in our moment. As far as the news goes, you know, this is an institution that, that predates the Internet, uh, the modern practices of journalism really kind of take their shape as a response to the propaganda of the World War II era. Uh, and we get practices like multiple attestation, the citing of sources, things like this. Uh, again, as a response to that propaganda, one of the interesting bits is that the word propaganda itself started out as a positive term. Uh, it's what the Church of Rome would use to refer to its missionary activities as transportation technology improved. They were able to sail to different parts of the globe that they couldn't do so before. They would also produce literature for their missionaries, largely Jesuit, Jesuit, but not exclusively, to carry into these places. And they would refer to that as propaganda because it was ideas that had their origins with, uh, you know, very local bishops, but it was propagated in other places. Now, in the World War II era, of course, you know, what they figured out, and this was a, uh, I'm a Christian, so I'll call this a demonic development, is that they could propagate ideas that had at most a tenuous connection to the practices of inquiry and of scholarship and of uh, humility. I guess that's not a practice so much as a virtue, but you get the point. 
And so, uh, you know, those are certainly analogies uh, in our own moment to what's going on there. Of course, we have to note that uh, the, the nation state itself, which, you know, had its roots in an attempt to check ecclesial authority, itself needed a check, which is how modern journalism really establishes its ethical tenets. But the revolution here, and this is what I, I, I love thinking about because it is an idea so grand that when I spend any time on it at all, uh, it just overwhelms me and makes me realize that I still have a lifetime of learning ahead of me, even though at 42 I don't actually have a lifetime ahead of me. <laughs> uh, uh, and that is that with the internet, let me back that up, with the printing press, you have an explosion in literacy. And of course, that doesn't happen simply from the techno technological innovation. It's paired with a new kind of education uh, that expands literacy to a much broader base of the population. With the internet, uh, and again, like I said, I really do think that the educational reinvention is still in process here, but what you get is not an expansion of literacy, the literacy was all already there, but an expansion of authorship. And for the first time, as you were narrating just now, people can get their information, I wouldn't say unmediated because, you know, I actually build websites. <laughs> so I know that there's a lot of work that, you know, goes into getting something like WikiLeaks up, uh, but certainly mediated in a much less centralized way, even than the height of the printing press era. So instead of there being thousands of sites of production, if you will, of new ideas, new information, new research, new inquiry, you have millions and tens of millions and hundreds of millions of authors out there in the world. Uh, this is something that is not remotely analogous to what we've got going on in the Reformation. It's something that Erasmus and Luther and Calvin, and for that matter, John Tetzel over on the side of Rome, would have found entirely alien. And frankly, I mean, you know, it is such a revolutionary moment that I find myself, you know, sometimes wondering what planet I live on. Well, on that note, I would like to pause the interview here and we'll pick up next time with the second half of this interview as we get more into this very influential time where there is a lot going on. It is revolutionary and that is in reference to the historical time that we're discussing as well as our modern times that we're living through right now just as Nathan just said. So we'll get into that a little further in the next episode as we do the second half of this interview. So in the meantime, I just want to say thank you for all of you who are supporting this show. Thank you for the ratings, the reviews, the word of mouth, the patrons especially, as well as those who are following the podcast on Twitter. So thank you all for all of your support. Thank you for those of you who have sent in emails and given me some feedback and your opinions and some comments and requests and things like that. I really do appreciate that. And I would like to hear from you, the listener. So thank you. Thank you for all of these different types of support. And overall, just thank you for listening. I hope you have enjoyed this and I hope you come back next time to finish out this discussion with Nathan Gilmore. So for now, I'm out. Peace. This has been another episode of Our Foundations Podcast. Thank you for listening. Goodbye. Yeah. Thank you. Goodbye.